It's time for the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation on the LaneCast Ag Podcast. Today's topic, the economic impact that a recession will have on the cattle markets and lessons from the 2008 Great Recession. Our guest is Dr. Anton Beckerman with Montana State University's College of Agricultural Economics and Economics Department. We'll have more right after this message from the Montana Farm Bureau. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau, we care for the country. As we've been talking about for the past few shows here on the podcast itself, the impact of the coronavirus is being felt across the world and especially not only in our bigger cities but across rural America and the talk of a recession not only here in the United States but globally is on the minds of economists and on farmers and ranchers minds as well. So what does that look like for the impact on the cattle market here in the United States? Joining us today our guest is from Montana State University from the College of Agriculture's Economics Department. Dr. Anton Beckerman is on the phone with us. Uh, Dr. Beckerman, how are things going in Bozeman for you today? Uh, they are snowy, but otherwise fantastic. Thanks for having me online. Oh, you bet. Uh, first off, uh, how are courses going? How, how is the interaction with students uh, with the online course prep? And uh, what, what do those economic students have in store for the next few weeks before technically the academic year wraps up? Gosh, it's it's certainly been a challenge. I am luckily not teaching in the spring semester. I usually teach in the fall semester. But uh, from what I hear from my colleagues, it certainly has been quite a fast and steep learning curve of getting all the content online. Obviously, all the Montana University system uh, universities have gone to online courses. And it's been challenging, but the technology has held up and from what I hear, the adaptation from both the instructors and the students has been quite good. So in that sense, I think the learning is still ongoing and we are just looking forward to have students back on campus. It has been uh, very quiet in a highly unusual way in the, the middle of March and early April. So we are looking forward to having all the students back hopefully in the summer, uh, but very hopefully in at least in the fall semester. Uh, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I was reading a publication that uh, you wrote, uh, part of the Egg Econ MT website, of course, a great resource for, for all of our listeners, not only in Montana, but across the nation, uh, really diving into depth on, on multiple agriculture uh, issues and the economics of those issues. And, and really, as I mentioned in the intro, the impact that a recession will have on the cattle markets. And I think you put it so well, we don't know what kind of recession, how long it's going to last, the major factors that'll come into that. Uh, so when you look at this uh, 
uh, publication that you put out, what, what are some of those key questions and factors that, that you are asking and addressing when, when it looks at uh, maybe that 2008 recession and the impact it had on the cattle markets and that recovery time that came with it? Sure. So I think if you ask most economists, they will say that we are either already in a recession that's starting to happen or on the precipice of a, of a recession. And from everything that I've seen and just intuition, it seems like it is likely to be a, a significant one, uh, probably one that is going to rival what we saw in 2008. We've already had very high unemployment uh, rates happening, and there's just uncertainty. Uh, we've never seen a public health epidemic uh, in the past several generations of this size, of this magnitude, and it is certainly affecting everyone across the globe. And of course, uh, everyone eats, and when everyone is affected in at least a very similar way, that's going to impact food markets. And I particularly focused in, in the post that you mentioned on cattle market because that is a market that is going to be probably more volatile than perhaps the staple grains. And we've already seen that volatility in the past month. We've seen cattle feeder cattle prices drop from, you know, a, a buck 35, a buck 40 a pound down to about 105, then rebound back to about 135. And now they're right around 120, 122 a pound. So volatility is certainly the key word in the beginning part of our current recession and our current economic downturn that we are experiencing. Now, again, with food markets, a lot of it, uh, what we typically think about shocks and economic disruptions coming from the supply side. So we had a drought or we had uh, something happen to, uh, you know, a disease outbreak or something like that, where it shocks the supply side of the market. In what we've seen in 2008 and what we're seeing uh, now is it, it's a big impact on the demand side of the market. So with the restrictions of people staying home, uh, people perhaps um, not being able to go out to restaurants where especially those higher quality, higher end food products like beef uh, are consumed, we're seeing a pretty big shock to the demand side and the consumption side of the beef and ultimately the cattle market. And, and what I teach in my agricultural marketing class is the way that we think about production is we start from the uh, feeder cattle producer all the way up through the supply chain to that final meat cut that you get at home or at a restaurant. But the way that the economic impacts work is the reverse. It starts at the final consumer and then it trickles down the supply chain back to those processors, the fed cattle producers, and ultimately down to the cow-calf operators here in Montana. And so uh, that is really what I'm looking at and how this recession uh, that's very likely and almost certainly going to happen is going to impact the demand side and how it's going to trickle down. So what we've seen so far is this huge volatility, right? Markets dropped like crazy very similar to the stock market uh, that, that we've seen the drop happening. Uh, and then all of a sudden, consumers said, holy smokes, I need to go and get myself food to stock up. And then we saw this increase in demand happen. And now we're sort of leveling out. We're, we're seeing prices drop again. Um, 
as we go forward, as this economic downturn uh, continues to uh, be longer and longer, and who knows how long it's going to be, but as we continue to be part of this economic downturn, what we'll see is consumer demand probably continue to drop. And uh, what that's going to do is trickle down to those production levels in the supply chain. Now, what happens dur during those economic recessions? Uh, and, and, and how do we know what's going to happen now? Well, the answer is we don't know. Uh, we might have a cure or at least a vaccine come up in the next six to eight months and everyone is back and this is going to be a blip and markets are going to recover. Or we might have a prolonged recession uh, that might last, you know, several quarters, maybe over a year even. And the way that we can say at least something at this ver very early start of this downturn is to look back at history and to look at what, what happened in the most recent recession, uh, especially the one in 2008 that provides a great model for what might be happening in the next year or two uh, going forward from here. And I say that because the 2008 recession was also very much a consumer-driven recession. We had the housing market bubble pop and a lot of consumers lo losing a lot of equity, a lot of disposable income and spending power. And so uh, a lot of consumers pulled back on uh, buying, especially those luxury goods, which include beef and, and, and overall meats uh, in the food market. So if we look back to 2008, what we saw was about a five to six quarter recession happening. And the way that I looked at the impacts on the feeder cattle market is by looking at what happened to beef demand during and after that recession, uh, primarily because it was, it was coming from the consumer side. Now, there are a couple ways that you can look at the impacts. One is you can say, all right, well, I'm just going to look at prices and I'm going to uh, see what happens uh, to what happened to prices in 2008, 2009, 2010 in feeder cattle markets, in fed cattle markets, et cetera, and try to tell a story that way. The problem with looking at prices is that prices represent the interaction between the supply and demand, the producers and the consumers. And we don't know. It's very tough to tease apart who was driving which part of the price dynamics. Another way to look at what happens during a recession is by looking at demand indices. And part of the research that I've done in the past couple of years, along with my colleagues, Dr. Gary Brester, uh, who is an emeritus professor here at Mont Montana State University and a colleague at Kansas State University, Glenn Tonser, is... Uh, look at data, historical data, and try to develop these demand indices that take away the supply side of the market and only try to focus on what is going on with consumers. And what we saw happen in 2008 is as soon as that recession started to hit, we saw a drop in the demand for both uh, all, all uh, cuts of fresh meat and the choice uh, uh, cuts of, of beef. And we saw that going down and going down and going down. And right around uh, about 2011, uh, end of 2010, beginning of 2011, we started to see those indices go up. Now, 2010 was about 
half a year, six to nine to 12 months after the recession had ended. So we see this prolonged impact on consumers who are recovering after a, especially a longer recession like we saw in 2008. And we actually didn't see the demand recover for beef uh, back to pre-2008 levels until about 2015. So it took about seven years for that recession to really uh, dissipate. And the other really interesting uh, part that I saw in, in the data when I looked at it was that the just across all beef categories, the return was faster than for the really higher quality beef. So it's it, it, there is a difference in how consumers responded in the recovery process and, and getting back to the type of beef products that they choose. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to be not as pessimistic as I could be, but if this public health emergency continues and uh, especially for a prolonged time period, and we have significant and a prolonged impact on our economy, that could really lead to a fairly long recovery in the beef demand sector. And that obviously is going to trickle down lower demand at the consumer level is going to lower the demand for processors is going to lower the demand from the uh, fed cattle producers and ultimately going to lower demand and prices for the feeder cattle operators. So, uh, Again, is this going to happen? Is it going to take seven years to recover? That's really tough to say uh, because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next week, quite honestly. Um, but there are some lessons from 2008 that we can see that, that tend to say, hey, it might take longer than a year or two to recover. So as as we look at that, Anton, obviously, it, depending on how long this recession takes place and the impact that it has on consumer preference uh, for protein products, uh, could we expect to possibly see a reduction in the size of the U.S. cattle herd uh, during the time of that uh, uh, recession and uh, uh, lower prices uh, for, for meat, beef? We certainly could. Uh, that, that's absolutely what the the typical and the rational response for cattle producers would be is, is to reduce reduce their numbers and to respond in reducing their quantity supplied to the change in demand. Um, now, the big component here and the big question is, even if we have this domestic reduction in demand, what's going to happen to exports? Um, one of the things that we've seen in the past 10 years is almost a doubling in export demand for U.S. beef products. Uh, And that has been a lot because of the growth in the Chinese markets and other East Asian markets, uh, but also just growth and economic uh, spending power across the world and the desire to buy higher quality beef products that we produce in the United States. So that's the big question mark is, Mm -hmm. can exports be the saving grace to a potentially depressed U.S. demand for uh, meat and protein products. Um, Right now, it looks like with China, they are 
kind of past the peak of their pandemic uh, and, and their public health emergency. There's a lot of news trickling out that they're opening up their economies and they're going to be looking for uh, imports to bring uh, in, into their country. They've also, uh, part of this phase one deal that President Trump signed in December, uh, would allow U.S. exporters of, of beef products to seek exemptions for tariff reductions uh, with China. So it would, if, if those companies get the exemption, it would lower the tariff that they face on exporting to China from 42% to 12%, uh, which would be competitive with every other country that exports to China, which would make the, the certainly the US beef product much more competitive than it has been uh, really ever uh, in the modern economy. And so that is an opportunity where I think there's a lot of optimism and a lot of hope that that could be the saving grace in, uh, in, mm -hmm. in what's currently happening in cattle markets. Uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. Meat Export Federation just released uh, statements and, and data, really reporting on just what you were saying uh, in Taiwan, ha Hong Kong, China. Uh, people are getting back to work. Restaurants are reopening. It, it by no means is back to normal, and nor will it be for quite some time. Uh, but uh, folks are getting out. The and like you said, uh, a lot of the consumers over there want to eat great protein, U.S. beef. Uh, but we also so bringing in the conversation of African swine fever, uh, we've seen the, uh, uh, the, the pork protein sector really hit hard in Asian nations. And that's something maybe we obviously we didn't have in 2008. Is that uh, an opportunity still for, for the U.S. to continue to fill that niche? Certainly. And, you know, I've, I've seen at least a few uh, articles that uh, talk about news items, talk about that the avian influenza has kind of spiked up a little bit again in China in, in the past couple months. So uh, there could be some culling of uh, poultry products uh, there as well. So certainly there could be some opportunity there. Now, China is, uh, their consumers love their pork. That, is, that has been a historical staple in their diets and, and probably one of the first sort of luxury protein products that, that they seek uh, for you know, middle income individuals. But certainly if there's a, a push and there is a change in preferences and these, uh, especially China having a relatively, you know, they were dealing with the public health emergency for a relatively short time, just a few months, uh, if their economy recovers and if those consumers are seeing more availability of beef products and perhaps maybe cheaper beef products because of the reduction in tariffs, uh, that could certainly lead to some changes in preferences uh, for those consumers. And if those changes in preferences happen for a significant uh, percentage of that population, uh, preferences typically are pretty sticky and they uh, tend to uh, you know, carry on for a longer time period, which could create an opportunity for an extended pipeline of U.S. beef products into China. And and again, I know that the U.S. industry, the U.S. beef industry, has been making incredible efforts to break into that market. And this might be a great opportunity. Now, the circumstances are, are very sad, but certainly it, it could lead to an opportunity to uh, put this ability to break into that market on a fast track or maybe on a faster track. So certainly there is some optimism there. 
uh, again, it's really hard to say what's going to happen because ultimately it's going to depend on consumer preferences and how quickly the Chinese economy recovers uh, from this both health and economic um, crisis that we've seen. So the question that I have is, obviously, China has uh, strict requirements. I know they've lessened some of those requirements in these in the phase one trade deal, but there there is still uh, um, requirements on what type of beef that uh, that can come into China from the U.S. Uh, uh, do you have the data or off the top of your head? I mean, what? how, how much of that sector could the U.S. Uh, uh, beef industry fill? Uh, how much work do producers need to do? I mean, what uh, how, What type of programs would producers need to even consider, uh, um, you know, wh- whether it be non-hormone treated, uh, f- for example? Uh, do, we, do we even have enough beef that falls into that category at this point? Uh, certainly... Well, let me start with this. I don't have the data off the top of my head, uh, and it, it there will certainly have to be a a build up period. Um, and I say that specifically with the cattle market because it takes so much longer for the cattle market to respond to cons- changes in consumer demands or changes in the types of consumers that that market serves. And in crops, you can change your land allocation within a year you know it takes two to three years for the 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 for the u.s cattle industry to really respond to consumers either in decreasing herd sizes or increasing uh the supply of 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 animals and ultimately beef products um and again it's going to come down to what the beef industry sees and at the processing level what the processors see as the biggest market opportunity. If they see that China and other export destinations are going to be the bigger market opportunity over the next, say, five years, they are likely going to send signals to producers that say, hey, we would like these types of products to be developed so that we can market these products to China and and other nations. If they see that, for example, the... uh, the U.S. recession is going to be relatively quick and the recovery is going to be relatively quick. Uh, perhaps they say, well, you know, the export market is important, but we want to continue targeting the preferences of domestic consumers. So I, I think it's 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 a wait and see situation. I I don't think that we have enough cattle right now to fulfill the requirements that, for example, maybe uh, China has and certainly not the requirements that uh, the European Union has, um, but uh, it. I think producers in the United States are highly flexible. They are professionals, and they can respond. It just takes time to respond. Uh, Anton, what are some of the suggestions uh, that you shared in, in your your latest writing on what producers maybe should just be thinking about uh, when when they're discussing the future of, of their family businesses over the next uh, few weeks and months uh, in the light of a recession? Uh, whether it's uh, just making sure they they know their 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 finances in and out, uh, uh, risk protection options that they may have. Uh, what, what are some of those uh, opportunities that producers should really be thinking? about here today yeah you know the the classic advice that comes in in highly volatile and highly uncertain times especially in down markets is know your cost of production Uh, i i preach that uh all of my colleagues uh preach that on a daily basis that if you know 
what it takes to break even down to the animal, you're going to be that much better off uh, either making sure that you're not in the red or making sure that you can go to that bank and get that operating loan and be at the top of the queue rather than at the bottom of the list that says, well, you know, we're not sure about this particular operation. So certainly knowing cost of production and being really as aggressive as possible in tracking what happens to the market. As, as I've mentioned many times during our conversation today, it is a very volatile market. Prices are going down and up within days, not weeks, days. Uh, they're you know gaining 50%. They're losing 30%. I mean, it is it is nuts what's currently happening, especially in the cattle market. I think the uh, the grain markets have been to some extent not as impacted. Um, and so I think knowing what is happening in both the out, output and the market marketing side of, of the equation as well as, as the cost side of the equation is going to be really important to take advantage of the opportunities. Let's say that we saw in the past week where prices just shot up through the roof as consumers were buying up and stocking up their uh, meat and other grocery supplies. Um, and so taking advantage of those opportunities and really understanding where your costs are and where you could potentially minimize uh, the damage of this particular downturn. That's really important. In terms of risk management, uh, you know, the, the, the two options um, or two alternatives that kind of I've been thinking about, one is the classic market-based instrument, right? Using futures or options to hedge price risk. Um, and that one is okay. Uh, you could certainly look into that. Um, you know, cattle producers haven't really been uh, as active in that type of hedging and price risk management strategy as maybe crop producers. I would even caution more against that or, or maybe really come in with um, as much as information as you can now because of the market volatility. Um, and we've also, there's been emerging literature that has shown that uh, cattle markets are much thinner. So there's uh, many fewer investors and many fewer participants in those cattle, both fed and feeder cattle markets. So prices can be much more volatile when you have fewer participants uh, participating in those markets. And that's kind of what we've seen uh, happening in the past couple of weeks. If you are going to go with that particular strategy, certainly options are best because you don't have to pay margin calls and in a very volatile markets where prices go up and down, margin calls are going to can be devastating. Um, and so an option instead of a futures contract can allow you to lock in uh, a price like a price floor for your operation, um, you pay a premium upfront and then you're not subject to those margin calls uh, nearly as much unless you exercise that option. Again, the, the critical point here is you gotta know your break even cost in order to lock in the right option price because it might cost you quite a bit to get that particular option. The other uh, risk protection, uh, risk management program that, that I'll, I'll mention is the Livestock Risk Protection, the LRP program uh, that's offered through the USDA. It's a subsidized price insurance program, uh, it, very similar to kind of a, a revenue or uh, 
a product that's offered on the crop side. Uh, and it, it's really intended for this particular scenario in markets with declining prices. And it's subsidized your premium that you pay for that insurance product between 20 and 35 percent based on the coverage level that you that you choose between 70 and 100 percent protection. The caveat there is that you can only insure up to about 6,000 head uh, per year. So for maybe medium and smaller size operations, that might be sufficient uh, to protect the entire operation, maybe for larger operations, uh, some sort of mix between the LRP and maybe some sort of options or forward contracting uh, might be an option or an, an opportunity there. So those are, you know, be really aggressive on tracking your own information and market information to take advantage of opportunities potentially consider futures and options and maybe perhaps really look into and call your local FSA agent to um, find out about the livestock risk protection program. Dr. Backerman, everywhere on, on Facebook over the past uh, few days and weeks, uh, the, the number two uh, issues that a lot of producers are very frustrated with, uh, of course, are the, the four big packers and mm-hmm. mandatory country of origin labeling. Uh, in your research and uh, the, the work that you've done with Montana State University's College of Ag and other uh, universities and uh, economic researchers out there, mm-hmm. mandatory cool. What impact did that truly have on the marketplace in 2015? Uh, did that impact consumer preference or were there other factors out there, uh, say bird flu or swine flu and a protein shortage that could have really impacted that? And, and does cool actually have a, uh, an impact on the marketplace? I'm really putting you in a, a corner on that, but yeah. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people that, that truly are, are concerned about that. So let me say this. Uh, There's a really nice study by a colleague of mine, Amanda Countryman. She's at Colorado State University. And what she and a few co-authors look at is what would have happened if we kept cool in place and would have had mandatory uh, cool in place and uh, had retaliatory actions by, say, Canada and other countries um, because this was viewed as something that was a trade restriction and violated to some extent uh, the WTO measures, uh, World Trade Organization measures, um, versus removing coal and letting other products for, from uh, different countries be uh, incorporated into the supply chain without without labeling. And what she found was that, and I, uh, because I don't have the data right in front of me, but they were some pretty big numbers that it would have been much more devastating to the US beef sector and ultimately the cattle sector uh, to keep those mandatory cool uh, requirements in place and incur those retaliatory actions from other countries um, than to not have those requirements in place. And so um, that is really, to me, one of the biggest factors that we have to think about is uh, what would happen to the industry because of those retaliations. Um, and we've seen the impact of retaliatory tariffs in play over the past three years uh, and the the amount of damage they can do to industries, not only in the short run, but probably in the next over the next decade or so um, as those industries, as, as we get more um, open trade set up again, uh, those industries are going to take quite a bit of time to recover. Um, we, we could have seen those kind of long run impacts on 
the U.S. cattle industry as well. So I, I think there is uh, quite a bit of argument uh, against those mandatory requirements because those retaliatory actions would have been so um, so significant, I think. So uh, in, in that sense, that that's where I would go. And, and that's a very recent research project that was published maybe a year ago. So it's using the most up-to-date and current information. But Anton, as we look at the packing industry, what impact do the four big packers have in the marketplace? And how can producers maybe look at maybe co-oping and creating other uh, smaller processing facilities uh, to try to get more competition in the marketplace? What are your thoughts on on the packing aspect of the market right now? Certainly, there is an argument to be made that when four companies, four firms represent 80, 81, 82, I've seen, it's right around 80. I've seen slightly different numbers. Um, When they represent that much of the market share, there is always going to be a concern for market power and the distortions in the market supply chain that that kind of market power can make. Having said that, uh, I have not seen studies that definitively show that that kind of market power has impacted prices in any significant way. Um, This has been researched over the past three decades, quite honestly, and there hasn't been really any consensus or definitive evidence that this market power is having an impact. the argument that these uh, four packers are meeting in a room somewhere and describing and, and negotiating some sort of price, that's probably pushing that too far. Um, it, it, it's unlikely that these four packers are operating like OPEC, for example, uh, which is a conglomerate and an oligopoly that do meet together and negotiate price. Um, there is no evidence out there that these four packers are doing that. So any type of price dynamics that they're uh, affecting is going to be through just restricting supply or restricting demand of those, um, either of the cattle or the beef products on, on restricting the, the supply into the consumer stream. There doesn't seem to be a lot of research that provides evidence toward that market power. Having said that, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, when you have, like I said, when you have four firms controlling 80% of the market, there's likely going to be some impact on how much product is being uh, processed and, and what the prices are for both consumers and producers of cattle. How much of that is, uh, how much of that price is being distorted, we just don't know. The other issue that comes comes into play is that this price uh, price distortion or or what what might appear as price distortion might be simply just how markets are right. So processors um, they don't they're much more flexible than cattle producers, right? They're not raising animals. They don't have to. Um, they can cut off how much they're processing very quickly. They can increase their inventories and not send as much beef into the marketplace fairly quickly. So they're much more flexible than cattle producers who, look, if you have a herd, you're not going to just eliminate half the herd within a day um, just to respond to what the markets are doing. You also can't increase your herd size very quickly in order to meet 
changes in market demands. And so um, as a producer of cattle, you have this product which is much less flexible uh, to change in response to markets. And so you, whenever there's going to be a change in demand uh, that you face, your ability to respond to those changes are going to be um, much, you're going to be much less able to respond to those changes very quickly. And when that demand falls, like we might see uh, because of the recession that, that is going to happen uh, in the next several quarters, uh, when that demand falls, you have animals, right? You have to uh, still sell those animals. And so you can't just keep some of those animals back and remain competitive in terms of keeping the price up. And so uh, some of it is just natural economics uh, and, and some of it could be, absolutely could be uh, a market power story. But all I've seen is just anecdotal uh, evidence of this and, and not a, a really rigorous economic study that provides, you know, some sense of how this is happening and to what extent those prices are being impacted. Uh, are they impacted? Possibly. How much? I have no clue. Um, and, and I haven't seen a, a paper uh, that really provides any indication of how much those prices are being impacted. So it, it's a really touchy issue. I'm probably not making many friends by what I just said, but it, it's really tough to understand the market dynamics, especially because those are private companies and they're not going to give up the data very easily. And, and so what some of the senators, including uh, Senator Tester and Senator Daines, uh, Senator Hoven, uh, as well as some others uh, across the United States, they're now pushing for those companies to release some of the data so we can do the analysis and really understand what's happening within the supply chain. But before we get this, these data and, and do that kind of rigorous work, it's really tough to put blame on anyone. And so I, I would really caution your listeners from uh, putting any blame on those four firms prior to really understanding what's happening with doing those rigorous analyses. Again, it's a, a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it yeah. is it, 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 it is uh, frustrating. I mean, I own cattle. And yeah. you look at this, and you want you want to find out why. And I know it's it's so tough to understand why why things happen, and not being able to get an answer right away. And uh, it, it is tough. I mean, it's I, I I share the frustration with so many of my friends and fellow producers out there that are, are concerned about this because it is their livelihoods. But yeah. What, what, yeah. Anton, what are, what are some maybe tips that you've seen from other producers out there that are you know we we talked about ways to really hedge against. Uh, the uh, possible recession, but what, what are some stories or studies that you've seen about uh, producers coming together and whether it's a co-op or, or uh, just looking to diversify their operations to, to really be more flexible when, because uh, of course you, you can't just liquidate a cow-calf herd uh, following a market trend like you mentioned. What, what are maybe some things you've seen out in the countryside that producers can actually maybe sit down and, and try to make some different business decisions and directions on their farms and ranches? Yeah, I, I think this is where the idea of co-op comes in, but but in a slightly different way, um, in terms of perhaps a co-op for you know putting together your products and maybe getting some market power 
uh, from that on, on the seller side of things. But I think the more probably accessible co-op uh, is to come together and, and discuss those strategies. Um, uh, you know, put minds together and say, I'm not the only one in this market. And instead of simply just saying, look, I'm going to have a beer with someone and discuss, uh, uh, you know, what I've been doing with with my neighbor. Instead, you know, come together and treat it as a real business opportunity to say, hey, let's get a couple of us together from the region. Let's bring our books and share as much of our financial uh, information as as you're willing to share. I know that's a very touchy topic for for many uh, small business operators, uh, but but do that as much as you can in order to see what others are doing and where the holes are in someone else's operations that maybe are not in your operation and vice versa, right? So a lot of the, a lot of producers, uh, they think of themselves as their own single business. And that's great. I think that that has made a lot of producers very well off uh, in terms of um, running a successful operation and running sustainable operations for multiple generations. But in a time of, um, consolidation in market power from the buyers being the processors, uh, perhaps it's time to rethink the strategy of, of you know, going at it alone uh, and, and providing this cooperative uh, approach of sharing information, especially financial and strategic information, not just with your lender, but with other producers uh, that may be able to offer suggestions or saying, hey, I did it differently. I did it this way instead of this way. Uh, and, and that kind of informational cooperative might be very beneficial in a time when uncertainty is quite high. Uh, so I would, I would really challenge and, and um, recommend that producers really think about that type of cooperative approach, uh, a sharing, information sharing approach to learn from, from each other uh, and not try to go at it yourself. You're already sharing your information with your lender. Why not share it with someone else who has on the ground practical experience just like you, but maybe does things just a little bit differently that you may never thought of doing, but will make a huge difference in your operation just just a little bit. So you can go from that red to that black and, and weather the storm that we're currently dealing with. Um, so certainly that would be... Um, my, my top recommendation is be aggressive with understanding your own finances and then think about coming together in groups and really understanding where the holes are and where the opportunities are uh, for you learning from others. This has been a strategy that has helped many, many young and beginning farmers and ranchers in working with more experienced farmers and ranchers. Um, and, and I think it, it's time to perhaps consider uh, going, a, you know, moving this from just the beginning and, and uh, young farmers and ranchers and moving it into everyone's um, approach to dealing with market uncertainty and market volatility. Um, so certainly that is something that, that I would offer as a consideration. Again, th this is something that would take a lot of um, a lot of fortitude and, and a leap of faith for sure uh, for, for a lot of folks who've been in the business for a long time. Uh, but it has worked and, and, it, and there is both 
agriculture education literature, agriculture economics literature, and uh, rural sociology literature that has shown that that kind of information sharing makes operations better off much more often than not. Uh, and so in a time like this, that's where I think coming together in that sense would be quite beneficial for, for many firms. No, I think that's a very interesting uh, take and suggestion on there because just think of the tens of thousands and millions of dollars that some operations have uh, gained just because of trial and error and think of how many operations could potentially be saved because someone shares that information with producers of all ages. I, I, I It's just so tough, like you said. Uh, we're private people in the countryside, but th- this happens and in, 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 in companies across the world in improving bottom lines. Uh, yeah. And, and I would say, I would say, Lane, you know, if um, I would also throw out that challenge to those lenders, to those rural banks that, that have those producers communicate with them and, and bring them together. I mean, I know this is a time of social distancing and, and maybe bring them together via Zoom or WebEx or, you know, Skype or something. But, you know, bring them together, create that community. And if you're a producer, reach out to me, reach out to my colleague, Eric Velasco, reach out to my colleague, George Haynes or Kate Fuller. MSU is also here to try to facilitate and bring together that kind of information and bring together producers that, uh, you know, could learn from each other. Uh, That's what we're here for. We are the land grant university in Montana. And um, we try to make these uh, these types of opportunities happen. So certainly, please feel free to reach out to us or to other people in your community that you think might be able to facilitate this if you don't feel comfortable facilitating or you think it's a great idea but don't know where to start. That's That's what we're here for. Uh, my my last little area here. I know yeah. we've been talking quite a long time, yeah. but uh, uh, interest rates. Uh, we're we're looking at very historic uh, low interest rates right now. Is this an opportunity? I know it's tough to talk about maybe making an investment, whether that's in livestock or in land in particular uh, at this very time. But is there a bright spot uh, in this economic situation with these lower interest rates? Could this be a time when, when a young farmer rancher or an operation uh, bringing family back on can expand and, and look at these if they're able to you know, look at their, 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 their debts and their incomes to make it work? Is, is there a bright spot here? Oh boy, um, <laughs> with with a very very cautious uh, yes maybe, but again only if you are able to just be so on top of your finances uh, to eliminate many many other things that that could potentially go wrong with the expansion. This is certainly a great time to. Uh, make that investment because the rates are so low and they are likely to continue being low as we continue through the economic recession. Again, there's evidence of this from 2008. I mean, rates were just historically low for for a decade, basically. Uh, And and so this certainly could be an opportunity uh, to make that investment if you are able to do that. Um, I would say that banks right now and other lenders are going to be very, very cautious um, about making those kind of investments on behalf of uh, of someone seeking a loan, um, just because of the, of the uncertainty that we're facing. I, I, the, certainly, you, 
I, I would encourage you to look into that because if nothing else, that'll get you to better understand your finances and uh, where the opportunities might be. I would say that these low rates, uh, given what the current uh, reserve, uh, Fed Reserve Chair has been doing and kind of keeping those rates very low, um, they're likely to continue. And especially because we are uh, heading into a recession, um, those rates are likely to continue being fairly low. So perhaps looking into it, but considering the opportunity, maybe not now, but seeing how the markets are recovering, um, I would say that there's probably some time uh, before that opportunity goes away uh, completely. So be very cautious about it. But certainly if you see something, if you see that parcel of land that you've been eyeing and uh, you see an opportunity to make some type of investments, um, you, you, should, you should definitely not close that door, um, but just be very cautious about it. Any last thoughts here today before I let you get back to self-distancing mode? <laughs> it, is a, it is a weird and uncertain market. Uh, I think a lot of it will depend on how long we're in this uh, public health emergency and how soon we can get people back to work and back to at least some sense of normalcy. Um, beef is a high quality market, which is a good thing uh, in that the margins are going to be higher for those products. But it's also one of the first ones for consumers to let go. Um, so stick with it. Uh, it's not going to go away. We are going to get back. Uh, things are going to recover. Uh, and I think there's many opportunities for the beef market going forward in the next three to five years as we get these trade agreements up and running and the export demand continues to grow. We just have to weather the storm. Um, and the best thing that I can say is be aggressive in managing your finances and that'll get you through it. Um, and just the, the best of luck. I, it, this, I, I, it's very hard for me to recommend anything right now because there's just not a lot of information out there. And the best thing I can do is say, good luck. Um, you guys are the best producers in the U.S. and probably the world of beef and just keep doing what you're doing. Well, again, thank you so much to Dr. Anton Beckerman for joining us here today. And again, as I mentioned, all these uh, studies and information can be found by visiting ageconmt.com. A lot of great resources. Sign up for their newsletter where uh, it comes right into your inbox where you can also just read all these outstanding uh, inf informational studies that MSU College of uh, Agriculture's e Economics and Economics uh, produces. Uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Beckerman, for, for joining us here today. All right. Thanks, Lane. All right, friends. That'll do it for today's Agriculture Conversation. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.